Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Esme, and this is One with the Prairie. Where we Gen Zers take on prairie life. Like churning butter. Like salting our meats before winter. Like baling hay. Like bringing the cows home after dark. And finally, like having a really hard life without indoor plumbing that we will probably never understand. So welcome to One with the Prairie, where we hashtag bring the bonnet back. We'll prairie until the cows come home. All right. Hi, everybody. We're back um, to One with the Prairie. Woo! Thanks for joining us. Yeah. How are you doing, Esme? <laughs> I'm good. I'm so excited that this is our second episode. I'm excited that we are back at it. We have some fun facts today about clothing. Hell yeah, we do. <laughs> we got a lot going on, so I'm excited. How are you? How was your week? Anything prairie-related? Um, I've been working on my kombucha fermentation, so I have finished two batches now. I'm working on my third, um, and I've been making some really nice ginger kombucha, which has been lovely. Mm. And yourself? What have you been up to? Well, first of all, we should have an episode on kombucha, because I'm sure the pioneers drank kombucha, but also fermentation in general, yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, this week, I have been reading On the Banks of Plum Creek. Um, by Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's the second, yeah, the second book in the series after um, the big, what is it? Is it the third? It is not the second book book. in the series. Third book. Third book in the series. Little House in the Big Woods, and then it's Little House in the Prairie, and then it's on the base of Home Creek. Pretty sure. Okay. It's the third book. (laughs) How are you liking it so far? Okay, well, first of all, I really like it because um, these books are my mom's old books from when she was a kid. And um, she, I opened this book and she's carried this around with her her whole life, like the whole entire series. And I opened mm-hmm. the cover and I found this like little inscription from my grandparents to her on Christmas Day in 1972. That's so cute. <laughs> and it says, Merry Christmas, honey. We hope you'll enjoy this book as much as the others. You're a real joy and we love you very much, mommy and daddy. And then that means she was wow. eight when she got this book. And then I just found that. I just love that that um, my grandma wrote that in these books. Yeah. Um, that's super sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, that's about it. And I'm actually cool. loving that book. So On the on the Banks of Plum Creek is really nice because they first live in a dugout. And it's, like, mm-hmm. um, right by a creek. And Laura a lot, uh, talks about a lot about um, um, or going to sleep to the sound of the, like, creek kind of, like, bubbling. Um and I really like, yeah. I, I don't know, that just seems so like cinematic and nice. And then they move into a like brand new house mm-hmm. um, and it just sounds really beautiful. And they're mm-hmm. like close to a town. So you get to read about school, which is really fun. We should have an episode on school. So yeah. 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 I think the part that's really interesting about that book is when they're living in the dugout, the roof on that one, <laughs> how they have like the thatch roof is just so interesting. I know. I like, I, I want to imagine it. I'm trying to imagine it. And then the part where um, I think an oxen like runs over the roof yeah. and makes it cave in. And gets caught in the roof. <laughs> Whoops. Anyways, please read this book. <laughs> it's definitely my favorite one so far in like the, the whole series. So Good. Yeah. Good. So last Last time, we asked for questions from our listeners yes. as part of our Prairie Parlay portion, and we have received some questions. Yes. So the first couple are from Edward, and he asked um, about what kind of insects are on the prairie. Um, 
And so I actually found some information on 1874. 1874 was the year of the locust um, for people kind of living in like prairie kind of landscape. And essentially the locusts just came came out of nowhere and they started like um, arriving in huge swarms. And there's a quote that I found um, that says, they beat against the houses, swarm in at the windows, cover the passing trains. They work as if sent to destroy. And these locusts would essentially um, scour the fields of crops. Um, so they would eat all of the crops. They would eat even the, the harnesses on horses, the paint that they had, handles on pitchforks. Um, and they often these farmers, these um, pioneers could only save their drinking water. They couldn't even save their food from these swarms of locusts. Um, and apparently these locust swarms looks like looked like a cloud of white vapor because their wings would catch the sunshine and they would look kind of create this white effect in the sky. And one interesting thing that I read is that um, as fall came and there was colder weather, the locusts would start to kind of hang out by the railroad tracks because they were warmer. Um, and at night, or kind of in the early morning, there, were, there was this chill in the air and the locusts would become stiff and they wouldn't move when the train needed to move. So that would actually create issues with the train leaving on time, these locusts hanging out by the trains. Wow. So I thought that That's was wild. really interesting. And actually the locusts like had a really strong effect on what was going on in the prairie at this time because a lot of people who had gone west to kind of make their way um, and they actually returned east and Kansas specifically lost one third of its population um, because they had these people lost all of their crops and they had to return home. So I thought that was that was just That's really insane. interesting. Um, yeah, they're such small but mighty animals. I know. And they're apparently related to the grasshoppers, but grasshoppers are like <laughs> not as evil. Mm -hmm. I was reading in the news about they are having these locust swarms in Kenya um, this May and there's just because of that and also in Ethiopia there the infestation is causing all these food shortages and um, just a lack of food and so I'm sure that similar things will happen in Kansas where all these people are just don't have access to any um, just a food shortages are awful but some of the pictures are insane and they're everywhere and I just can't imagine walking around and like yeah being oh close to bugs yeah <laughs> absolutely like it's it sounds horrible and and i forgot to mention that that there were ways that the pioneers would try to kind of adapt their lifestyles to to get rid mm -hmm. of these locusts and they would either shoot at them with shotguns they would build oh huge bonfires or they would explode gunpowder charges in their fields and that's just insane to me that 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 is what needed to happen to save their crops and to save their livelihoods so yeah the problem solving we also had another question from Edward that was, what was the staple crop to grow when out and about on the prairie? Ezzy, what was that staple crop? Okay, so I found a little bit of information on this. Um, corn, wheat, and potatoes were the primary crop um, in the 1850s. And um, Laura talks a lot about this in the books, but her family went from kind of... Um, getting kind of game wild game in the woods when they were living in the big woods to wanting to be kind of farmers when they go out to the prairie and um her father um, attempts to grow wheat um and they basically would would create rows using their animals they had horses or oxen and they would create rows um and break like the sod to plant the corn um or the potatoes or the wheat and then like sell that in order to get like their staple goods like sugar and um like fabric and things like that 
Um, yeah. So that's the yeah. simple, short answer. <laughs> nice. Yeah, they definitely talk a lot about using corn and making like corn pone, which I'm pretty sure it's like a corn cake that they fried, especially when they were without with strips of meat, which honestly sounds like a good meal. Doesn't that? Okay, so we'll have an episode on corn pone too, yeah? Everybody should make cornbread, <laughs> corn pone. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, okay, so then the next question we had was from Michelle. Can you mention some popular prairie songs and can you attend, attempt to sing some of them? So Michelle, to that we answer... Home, home <laughs> on the range Where the deer and the antelope play Where seldom is heard A discouraging word And the skies are not cloudy all day I know you wanted us to do that you're welcome. You're welcome, Michelle. Also, it's like a classical American West song that you have to sing. There you go. Um, that's very relevant, and I think was actually written around the time of the Little House books. So yeah, very, very. Important. It's the unofficial anthem of the American West. Is it really? And the official anthem of the state of Kansas. Hell yeah, go Kansas! <laughs> and Michelle, a more real answer to your question. Um, I was reading on the bunks, banks on the banks of Plum Creek, and in that, Laura and her friends at school they sing um, this specific song. Um, it's called Uncle John, and it's essentially a song they would sing. It's kind of like Ring Around the Rosie, where they have someone in the middle and they sing the song, and then someone else goes in the middle. And in the book, they say they say Uncle John is sick a bed. What shall we send him? A piece of pie, a piece of cake, apple and dumpling. What shall we send it in? A golden saucer. Who shall we send it by? The governor's daughter. If the governor's daughter ain't at home, who shall we send it by? And then all of the children shout, by Laura Ingalls. And then Laura runs in the circle. So that's an example of kind of like a fun game they would play like in their um, lunch or I think lunchtime at their school. Um, And so Sarah and I found a link to uh this song on youtube so here it is the lyrics are a bit different but this is the melody one two three four uncle john is sick of bed what shall we send him three good wishes three good kisses and a slice of gingerbread what shall we send it in in a piece of paper paper is not fine enough but in a golden saucer yeah, and then, um, Sarah, what's the last question we got from uh, some listeners? So our last question is from Tillich, and it says, and he asks, what was the medicine and surgery like on the prairie, TM? Um, great question, Tillich. So there's actually some really interesting instances where they talk about different diseases that the family encounters, such as scarlet fever. So at one point, Mary, Carrie, Grace, and Ma both get scarlet fever, which Laura talks about. Um, but she attributes Mary's blindness to scarlet fever when actually there's been a lot of research about that not that this was due to scarlet fever, but rather that it was from viral meningoencephalitis. Oh. Um, but interestingly, scarlet fever just around the time in the prairie was one of the most fatal infections, infectious diseases in children across the United States um, with fatality rates of around 15 to 30%. And it was one of the top four causes of blindness. So overall, there's really a lot of issues that people didn't necessarily know about mm-hmm. and didn't have ways to treat. Um, so, for instance, Mary, when she became blind, they didn't actually find out what it was from until they later went to a specialist and realized that 
she had inflammation of her optic nerves and so those nerves were now paralyzed and she had uh, she lost her vision that's forever. horrible um i know just imagine being blind she was only yeah. 14 like that's the rest that you will see your entire well, life i cannot yeah. imagine um and then there's another part in little house in on the prairie so that's about around 1874 where their whole family is living and there's a huge swarm of mosquitoes that come in and they everybody all of a sudden becomes sick with this thing that they call fever and og and they don't realize until later that it's from malaria um and their pa attributes it to this watermelon so he eats this watermelon he's like oh it's definitely not because of the watermelon and if it is i'll just eat the watermelon but still everybody gets sick from it and so they're literally all on their deathbeds and the only reason why they were able to be saved in a sense is because there's this doctor that's working nearby with the native indians um who's also being affected by malaria and so even that they didn't have the medication to combat malaria and they were still using um, natural medicines that had historically been quite effective to treat it and so it's only because of the proximity of doctors that they didn't actually mm-hmm. have on the prairie that they were able to survive. Wow. Um, so overall, I think they on the prairie, they use a lot of home remedies, common sense, natural thinking. Um, in Little House in the Big Woods, a kid is jumping up and down on a yellow jacket's nest and gets completely swollen. And so they didn't have Benadryl or EpiPens or any sorts of injections. So all they did was just wrap him up in mud and hope that his the entire swelling all over his body would decrease wow um, so i think we're we're lucky to have all these vaccines yeah. no to anti-vaxxers <laughs> yeah it's crazy that i mean that that part in little house on the prairie when they all get sick with malaria mm-hmm. that was a crazy chapter because yeah. it begins with like oh yeah like pa's sick or so, one of them was sick but now we're all sick and all of a sudden like laura's mm-hmm. describing like oh like we were going in and out of consciousness and like we couldn't and i was like oh my gosh this book is really intense all of a sudden like weren't we just talking about like mm-hmm. the fun christmas you had <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah. the symptoms yeah. are wild and then it's only later on at the end of the chapter where laura leaves you off and they were like they realized oh it's not from breathing in the night air it's not from eating the watermelon they didn't realize that malaria was carried by these mosquitoes and so just thinking about how far we've come i guess and how many more people we've been able to help. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Okay, we got to move on to our next segment, which is Prairie Project, which is what we are centering this episode on because we made our own shirts. So, Sarah, how did making our own shirts go? Yes, indeed. Well, first off, we took on this very extensive project that we didn't quite know was going to be so extensive, um over quarantine and we really wanted to you know make our own shirts because we buy shirts all the time at least i buy shirts and it was like why can't we make our own so famous last we picked words. out this <laughs> famous <laughs> you are so true we picked out hmm, we picked out a uh, a pattern and our our fabric which is actually this very nice yellow color that i really like Um, because we both were going through this yellow phase. But the pattern was supposed to be this nice, easy pattern, one hour, you know, you could do it in a day, and somehow it went (laughs) down. Yeah, it ended up being so much work. Like, if okay, for those of you who want to make your own shirts or make your own clothing, if you're just starting out, an easy pattern will not just take you an hour. It will take you literally two months, which it took Sarah and I. 
<laughs> I literally did. Start with a pillowcase. Yeah. Just make a pillowcase. Make something case. easy. <laughs> the easiest thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, also, what I wasn't expecting, because I haven't really um, made, I haven't ever made my own clothes. I have, like, stitched things, but never that, is that there mm-hmm. are, like, so many different steps that you have to take. Like, first you have to get the pattern, you have to get the material, then you have to cut out the pattern, then you have to pin the pattern onto the material and then cut around that to get each piece. And then you can start with the sewing. And, like, all those little steps of pinning and cutting like that all takes mm-hmm. a, a pretty long time and so it took us took a us long, long time, time. We, what we pinned and cut fabric we watched <laughs> killing eve huge shout out to sandra, we love sandra. Love but we we got through like two seasons of killing eve <laughs> which are long episodes before you were ready to start <laughs> sewing and then you start, yeah, you were talking about pinning the different pieces of the fabric together and everything has to yeah. be super precise. And I know that in the, at least for the final outcome of mine, because it wasn't precise, little mine things too. were off that you have to go back in and fix up. And then we had to hem. Then once we even finished the shirt, we had to then hem it a bajillion times to mm-hmm. make it like actually fit us. It just took a right. really long time. Because the sizing was really difficult to figure out, too. We were trying to measure ourselves, our bust, yeah. and the nape of our neck to yeah. the back, and figuring out what size we were. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think what the part that was the most confusing was figuring out everything on the pattern, the new, like, lingo. So we did we made darts, which is kind of old school, but okay. <laughs> and so we were reading the pattern, and how do you actually make a dart, and then figuring out, okay, we have to do a stay stitch everywhere. There was these little triangles. What are we supposed to do with that? Yeah! Oh, man. A lot of YouTube videos. (laughs) Yeah, we watched a lot of YouTube videos. videos. We would recommend that you do this, but I feel like the easiest type of shirt you can make is like a a tank top without layers underneath or a skirt that's Mm -hmm. like a tube skirt. Those kind of things that don't have all of those little... Because our pattern, for some reason, had all of these other parts to it um, to make it more fitted, but you don't need that the first time. Um, mm-hmm. But it was fun. Like, it was very enjoyable in the end to have our own shirt um, to have our own that shirt. we had made. It was so. very rewarding. <laughs> it was. Very, very rewarding. It was. Because you come out with this final project. Yeah. And using a sewing machine was quite cool. We have threaded the needle countless times. <laughs> Did the freaking bobbin. <laughs> the bobbin! <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> overall, would you do it again? Um. Well, I am. Well, I'm trying to make a skirt now. but it's You take, are. It's taking a while. So what kind of skirt are you making? Well, I'm making kind of a long skirt. I bought some pattern that's kind of like green with some little pat like little white dots on it. So it's kind of nice. Okay. Um but I'm excited that, to see the final product. Oh, it's gonna take me another two months probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy. But that Boy, brings day. me to we did some research this week on what mm. did people on the prairie wear at this time around the time of like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, and so one interesting thing I found is that kind of related to the skirt I was just talking about is there's this thing called the prairie skirt. And that was the most popular skirt at this time. Um, it was like a slightly flared um, skirt and it was usually made out of denim or flowered calico. And it was an adaptation of high fashion to kind of the practicalities of rural life. And what was interesting is that it actually became fashion much later on in like the late um, 1900s. In the 1970s, during the U.S. Bicentennial, which was the 200th um, anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, um, there were a series of celebrations paying tribute to the creation of the U.S. And at that time, people started wearing prairie skirts again. 
And that led to Ralph Lauren's 1978 Western-themed collection. And that was, like, kind of the making of prairie skirts into, like, a high-fashion retail-type thing. And, like, mm-hmm. Ralph Lauren... Uh, uh, is it Ralph Lauren? <laughs> Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Ralph Lauren. Fancy. Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Ralph Lauren had all of these prairie skirts made, and he also had kind of these cattleman jackets and boots and things like that. And what yeah. he, he claimed what he liked is that this, like, line was the centered on the reverence of nature, land, sunshine, and clean air, and that when you were wearing his clothing, quote, you were just living life. That sounds so America. <laughs> God. So, yeah, that was the prairie skirt, and then you also had some information on another type of skirt. Yeah, I think I w- want to talk about hoop skirts, and overall, I feel like throughout prairie fashion, you kind of see this this um, intersection of fashion but also very effective yeah like what's you know good to wear and so they on the prairie style they had these hoop skirts that people wore which were essentially started off as these women's undergarment that held the skirt extended into a fashionable shape Mm -hmm. but essentially it hold the skirt away from your leg so that you could stay cool and and stay cool in higher climates so when it was hot you know you wouldn't have this fabric sticking to your leg and you were getting sweaty and it was rubbing and whatnot which is where it started, and it would help you to keep, keep would you, so you wouldn't trip on your skirts while you were working, and you didn't have to hold your skirts up because they wouldn't get in the way of your feet. But then it became this fashion trend, fashion style, and the size and the scale of the hoop slowly grew to increase. And so I feel like eventually you're becoming immobilized because they're just so big, you can't fit through a door. Like, you know, you get into these, like, crazy nuanced things, and it's, okay, now where do we draw the line for this is too big and this is fashionable but not necessarily practical? And I think that, like, intersection of where it comes from Mm -hmm. is really interesting. Yeah. Um, Also, especially because with um, women's fashion on the prairie, right, a lot of the materials that they use was, Mala talks about making dresses out of calico all the time. Mm -hmm. And so calico, the reason why they use that fabric especially is because it's a super lightweight and a durable cotton fabric Mm -hmm. um, that you can use just frequently on the prairie for errands or for any of the chores that you have to do. Um, And you buy a bolt of fabric and you make a lot of clothing out of the same fabric. And what calico essentially is, is it's a coarse, brightly printed fabric that's generally printed with two different color patterns. Um, and you were talking about that they were wearing this like a blue sprig or a red sprig mm-hmm. dress made out of specific special fabrics. And I'm sure that um, calico fabrics that have more intricate details are much more expensive. Um, but the sturdiness of the cotton fabric really holds up not just for long wear, but it's also more much more inexpensive and washable and usable. Um. And so that as a form to construct clothes out of makes a lot of sense for people that are doing chores every day, working in the fields, yeah. tending to their animals. Um, so I think that line. Yeah. Yeah. What were the the hoops in the hoop skirts made out of? Ooh, good question. So the hoop skirts were usually, um, they had like a metal rim, mm-hmm. and so that's what created that shape. Oh, it was metal. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was like actually something that was wow. there. That is. Yeah, kind of like a, like a bra underwire, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So maybe the trend still continues. The trend still continues. (laughs) What was, what's interesting too about Calico is that a lot of times I've read in the books that, um, like after 
kind of one of their kids was done mm-hmm. wearing a dress or had grown out of a dress, they would use that as like washing cloth or they would use it as curtains. They would repurpose the material a lot of times. Like I remember one time one of the girls ripped her dress and then they repurposed mm-hmm. it um, because they didn't get a lot of bolts of cloth. Like they would go and get cloth when they were living in the big woods or when they were living further away from the town, they would get cloth like, one, you know, once every five months or a long time. And their children were, right. or maybe even longer than that. Um, yeah. And then the other thing you were saying about working in the fields and kind of how Ma and Pa were always constantly doing chores as well, is that they all had their like Sunday best that they, mm-hmm. that they wouldn't wear. And they had these dresses that they wouldn't wear when they were out in the fields and those they would wear to either like special occasions, um, like, you know, Christmas parties, things like that, or on Sundays. And they would obviously not wear them because then, you know, they weren't their Sunday best. Um, (laughs) so yeah, that's really interesting. And then also, also related is that in terms of men's clothing, men wore kind of a lot of pantaloons or trousers, um, they were loose fitting, kind of similar to what you're saying. Like they had mm-hmm. to be useful um, in in multiple different ways. They wore loose sure. fitting shirts with dropped shoulders and kind of opening partway in the front. And they were often checked, plaid, or dyed dark colors because then they wouldn't show dirt. They wore vests. Um, they wore coats that are pretty similar to the coats we wear now. And they sometimes wore hats that were large brimmed and felt hats. Um, mm-hmm. They had boots. Um, and actually, interestingly, pointed cowboy boots didn't come until about 30 years after the 1840s. So the, the seven, they really? didn't come until 1870s. Um, okay. And then, oh, also an interesting thing is that from infancy to toddler years, um, mm-hmm. boys wore dresses. And then after that, they wore short pants until around eight years old. And then they dressed like their fathers. And similarly, young girls, they would wear kind of looser fitting dresses. And then when they reached their teens, they would dress like their mothers. Got it. That's really interesting because there's like, there's some parts in the book where they talk about, oh, the girls are growing up and they have these clothes, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the calico dresses that they're wearing, but then they're going to school and their dresses are short, which means that they're, you know, they're growing and they're growing out of these clothes. And it's just, I think the idea of kind of fabric being and clothing being hard to come by. Um, do you know that scene in The Sound of Music where Maria takes the old curtains and drapes in her room <laughs> and creates these, like, hey, that's it. like yeah. play clothings from that. Uh, just reminds <laughs> me of that. And I think that's so funny because you can just imagine, like, everybody in the family wearing the same exact, you know, pattern and the same exact, clo- like, mm-hmm. clothing from the same totally. fabric. And that's yeah. just so right. <laughs> it's so, it, it's crazy. And, oh, and yeah. another interesting, uh, final interesting thing about the clothes is also mm-hmm. hats were very important, and young girls hats. wore sunbonnets, um, and also women as well, because that mm-hmm. was their way of protecting themselves from the sun. They were out in the sun constantly. Um, right. And Laura has this thing where in every book she, like, never wants to wear her sunbonnet, and she <laughs> always keeps her sunbonnet off her head, but Mary always keeps hers on, because she's kind of, uh, Laura's more the of the good child. Yeah, yeah, Mary's more of the good child. Yeah. Um, but actually, that's a good segue into our prairie hardship section, which is just um, just about the fact that that the women in um, women in prairie, prairie life were making the clothes along with all of the other chores that they were doing. They were keeping the house running. Um, and then the mm-hmm. men would often like work in the fields and things like that. Um, and so women. Um, well, OK, so an interesting thing is the Northern Pacific Railroad connected to Tacoma, Washington in 1873. Prior to that, it was very hard to get textiles, 
But once the railroad was there in 1873, it was much easier to get that from like towns and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Before that, often people would raise their own wool and have like a wool wow. supply. And it's just crazy to me that anytime, you know, her chil- ma's children needed new clothes, she'd have to sit down and like actually sew them herself. Um, sewing machines yeah. didn't didn't arrive on the scene until much later on. You really are owning all the parts of the process. That's just wild. Yeah. Yeah, what you were saying about sewing machines, I think that was really interesting because they first came and they were such a luxury and yep. they came to be part first, the first customer. Uh, customers for those or consumers were like clothing manufacturers yeah. and that's where clothing started to become much more available um and it was only in the last book these happy golden years where pa sells a cow and because of that cow kids to purchase a sewing machine for ma wow. so it's like this exchange where you have a cow for a sewing machine wow because um, they were still quite expensive around the 1870s and only then did they become available for middle class homes yeah um but it's crazy to think about how much more time is saved because of that, because a sewing machine produces a shirt in about one hour compared to by hand, it takes around 15 hours. For for and people so that like, are the, actually the time, The time! Yeah, versus us, it's two months. Granted, we we had now. a sewing machine and we did not make that shirt in one hour. <laughs> there was some TV watching, some beer drinking. It was uh, a good time. Our sewing era. Making an adventure. <laughs> but seriously what a hardship and then you think about us when was the last time you bought clothing and where did like where do you buy it from and just click online yeah online yeah definitely gives you more appreciation for the clothes that we have i know Um, and i feel like the hardships that you and i have at least for the shirt that we made because we spent so much time tailoring it we were constant like you just you have to think about when you're actually going to wear it because it's so hard to take on and off. And so yep, the hardship yep, yep. is more like, when do I actually wear this shirt now? We're also so afraid to, to like, break the stitching after oh, yeah. we work two months on this shirt. So I feel like Sarah and I are just, okay. like, we're just basically not even wearing it. Anyway. Seriously, it's not. It's not happening. But that's a, that's a good segue into our Prairie Headline segment. Prairie headline. <laughs> which uh, which is where we find a headline from the week, modern day, and related to what we're talking about on this episode. So somewhat related, um, I found a New York Times article about how coronavirus is, is kind of leading department stores to be bankrupt, obviously, because mm-hmm. people aren't shopping in them. And um, there, this article is basically wondering if this is going to lead to like the actual downfall of the standard American mall. Yeah. And essentially the the standard American mall was built around department stores and there's been a decline in department stores. And actually when I think of like the boom of malls, I think of like Stranger Things season 3 and the Starcourt Mall. <laughs> that's like the <laughs> that's the real yeah. deal mall. <laughs> um, but this sent me down like a a rabbit hole of the history of malls and I found that essentially malls actually didn't arrive until the 1950s and 60s. Um, Mm -hmm. They were pioneered by an Austrian-American immigrant named Victor Gruen. And he wanted to prioritize pedestrians over cars in urban cores. And so he created the first mall in the United States, which was the Kalamazoo Mall. And then um, from there, that led to kind of mall culture. But in the mm-hmm. 1990s, uh, malls began to decline. And what's interesting is that I found where did the word mall actually come from? There was this 
game, the 16th century Italian alleyway game called Resembling Croquet. The English adapted the game and they changed the the name Palamalio um, to Paul Mall. And the alley on which this game was played uh, was called Paul Mall. Okay. And that name led to huge national areas in cities to be called malls, like the mall at St. James's or the U.S.'s National Mall. And that led to the name Mall. How random. I feel like entomology is such a weird thing. But, yeah, I feel like malls, you know, we kind of were getting there in the right direction. Like, um the what's the name of the inventor guy Gruen yeah Gruen had a great idea we want to prioritize pedestrians and we want to get rid of cars in urban areas but I feel like malls kind of detracted from that when we got Americanized (laughs) and weird but now with COVID I mean we have all these places that are opening up for outdoor dining and Mm -hmm. so these restaurants are taking over parts of the street that they didn't originally have and so maybe we are seeing some sort of comeback for that where in these urban cores we have more people people using the spaces rather than cars. I know yep. Denmark does a really good job of that. I spent some time in Copenhagen and they have this whole inner, their whole inner city section um, is all pedestrian. There's just no cars allowed. Um, yeah. And it makes great, it's like good use and people walk around more and it changes the vibe of the city for sure. Yeah, definitely. What's interesting yeah. is that that's what Gruen wanted, but mm-hmm. much later in his life when he noticed that malls were kind of, leading to this insane capitalism and kind of were becoming, you know, in a league of its own and not exactly what he had originally intended in terms of a pedestrian area. He actually Mm -hmm. denounced malls. um, Really? The the creator of malls. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The uh, concept of a mall probably has just completely changed for Gruen. And now that, you know, the physical store is going bankrupt, we have the rise of online shopping, right? Where Black Friday is such a big deal, but even more so, Cyber Monday deals start so early. Amazon Prime has a whole two days where you can just go on Amazon Prime, buy a membership, and then get things shipped right to your house in like a day, even hours now. And it's just, I feel like, sure, we're getting rid of the mall and we're trying to bring in pedestrians and people into these areas, into the physical areas, but we're seeing this whole new space of capitalism and American spending where we can spend our money in just so many different ways on so many more things, and it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. And one interesting thing is that these malls, malls now um, are trying to kind of like diversify what they are. And so Uh they're trying to become kind of a consumer experience and build like movie theaters and build like certain eating areas and kind of making them more of a destination, um, which has apparently succeeded. um, uh, And also like they're trying to change the orientation of malls. They're kind of like demalling them. So they flip okay. the store entrances so that they face the street so that it's kind of still indoor shopping, but it's kind of more accessible. Um, right. It's kind of interesting. There's a mall near me called the Palisades Mall um, that has this whole ropes course inside. You can go yep, in yeah, and that's do a it. ropes course and they yep. have like a Ferris wheel and a carousel and you're just like, why? Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly it. Yeah, it's wild. What is the future of shopping? We will see. But now we all Only know. Only time will tell. <laughs> now we all know the origin of the word mall, so that's good. Thank you for that, Ezzy. That yeah. was very insightful information. I'm just going to whip that one out of my pocket, you know, sometime later down the line. You're welcome. Okay, I think we've reached almost the end. We just have prairie yeah. pointers. So, Sarah, what's your prairie pointer? My prairie pointer is 
totally unrelated from what we've currently been talking about, but also kind of about, like, you know, the decline of things, I guess. Yeah, sure. So... I'm going to talk about the decline of American grasslands and the associated decline in prairie dogs that we've seen. So I'm sure that, um, have you, like, you've gone to a zoo and you see those prairie dog exhibits where you can, they have the glass thing and you can see all the underground burrows. And um, so actually across, like, the prairies of North America, they had all these underground burrows that they literally call towns. So it's like a town under the prairie Mm -hmm. where you can have up to tens of thousands of prairie dog residents. And they are actually really crucial and really important for the prairie land ecosystem mm-hmm. um, because they eat these grasses and they roots and the roots of these plants and thus destroy tall plants to make clearings for predators. They're also eaten by predators. Um, but they can be seen as pests that complete, compete with the livestock for food. So at the turn of the 20th century, um, people estimated that there were around 5 billion prairie dogs on the millions of acres of grass prairies that were left in North America. Mm -hmm. And now that population has dropped by 98%. So a lot of these species are endangered. Um, But they are super important for the ecosystem by aerating the soil and allowing for more water penetration. They are kind of like a keystone species in the prairie life where they're being relied on by other species as either food or access to specific for specific grasses by improving the quality of soil and vegetation. And so I think as we talk about the decline of moles and we talk about um, kind of this intersection between capitalism and practicality, like we kind of have to keep in mind these ecosystems and like what did the Ingalls family, what did they see and how can we kind of maintain that? Wow. And so that's my point here, a call (laughs) to action for more sustainable sustainable design and uh-huh. ecosystem restoration. Cool. So did did Laura ever see prairie dogs? She did. Um on Little House on the Prairie, she I remember that um reading that Laura and Mary would like run around and like hunt after these prairie dogs so and cute. see them pop up out of one hole and come out of another and so Wow, that's cool. I feel like it's those small things that are part of your memory and your experience with the place. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. What is your prairie pointer, Ezzy? Uh, so, so mine, mine is a quick one. Um, it's this book that both my parents are reading, which okay. is called Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it was huh. selected as one of the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best Books of 2017. And they okay. say it is absolutely fantastic. And it's about her and her daughter's relationship, Rose Wilder. Mm. And Rose, Rose Wilder is like a very interesting figure. She was a founder of the American Libertarian Movement. Um, she and her mother had a really interesting relationship. And they actually were like wrote and published these books together. Um, yeah. And so... I would recommend reading this book. I'm just about, I'm going to start it. And I, one interesting thing I read is that like the central question of these, this book is when people embrace trust and act on the proposition that the United States is a land of opportunity, how are they to make sense of failure? Because a lot of the book talks about Mm -hmm. Laura Ingalls and her husband and the, the way that they would go and create a new farm in a new place. And every, every time they created a new farm, it would fail in some way. But yeah. they, they held tight to the sense of the land of opportunity and they kept trying, kept trying, right. and they were never able to make kind of their wages off of farming like they wanted to. Um, and so it kind yeah. of talks about her in later life not – I think it only centers on like the last last book of Little House on the Prairie and then it goes further okay. into 
Laura Ingalls and Rose Wilder's life. Okay. Yeah, because I know that a lot about, like, Almanza Wilder and Laura Ingalls' relationship right when they started and after they were actually really quite poor and it was only really through these books that she wrote that they started to make like a serious income and I think that that question that you raise is very interesting especially in like this sense like the political atmosphere because it's like okay if this is the American dream how are politicians capitalizing on that to Mm -hmm. gain voters there's just like a lot that that could go into so definitely a book that I'll have to add to my list yeah that's one thing that I've um, I've noticed even in in the books right now like the three Mm -hmm. past books they've moved their family in the 1870s has moved three times and they're moving Mm -hmm. every time because Pa has an idea of like oh in this place the game will be good in this place we can grow wheat in this place we'll have really great like irrigation or water or we'll be close to a town and every time it's like this new idea of what will be Mm -hmm. the life for them and it's just I mean I can't even imagine picking up and moving my life every time seeking after this opportunity that's constantly changing yeah I'm interested to hear how your perspective changes after you read this book. Yeah. Um, And what all this movie does to somebody. And yeah, that'll be really interesting to hear about. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Also, Sarah, I award you 10 points for your Prairie Pointer. Thanks, Ezzy. You get 11 (laughs) points. What up? Awesome. Points for the Prairie. Points for the prairie. Well, this was a great time. We had maple yeah. syrup. Then we talked about some shirts. And next time, to be uh, to be continued. To be determined. <laughs> we may be stay talking tuned. about our homebrewed beer, but mm. stay tuned. With a possible special guest, stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Again, keep your cows close to you and <laughs> stay uh, stay interested in the prairie. And see you next time. Bring the bonnet back. Hi, guys. It's Esme. Just a quick reminder to send us any questions you might have about prairie life so we can address those in the next episode. And please follow us on our Instagram at, at one with the prairie. See you next week in 1873.